I'm Diana, and I love printing and design, typography and branding, books and publishing. I've traveled the world learning about trends to share with my students and with my readers. But I haven't forgotten where I started, writing papers about paper on paper. And now, I've created a podcast to share what I know with you. So, let's talk paper scissors. This is the final episode in the brand new series, where you'll hear from Richard Nollipetta of Parcel in Toronto, who will chat about his work for the agency, including one very special project he's been a part of recently. You'll hear how Parcel defines branding, the ways collaboration happens on large projects, and the challenges of handing finished work over to a client who can shape or change the design in any way they see fit. Finally, you'll hear why Richard believes design jobs are safe from being totally taken over by AI. Before we get into the episode, I love that what you're about to hear is so different, no better or worse, just different, from the approaches to brand identity design from the first two episodes. You'll hear that Richard enjoys the problem-solving aspects of his role, Parcel thriving in a space where design is directly solving business problems instead of seeing design as art. In contrast, as we heard in episode 143, Meg Lewis doesn't love the problem-solving aspects of design and their clients arrive after the problem-solving is already figured out, ready for Meg's highly personalized art to be applied to their designs. Problem solving first versus art first. I am so happy to see such diverse approaches, both wildly successful, described for us here. Finally, I encourage you to check out the images shared by Richard during the recording, which are available in the show notes at talkpaperscissors.info. This episode is part of a guest lecture series in Design as Communication in the Bachelor of Brand Design program at George Brown College's School of Design. Okay, let's listen in. Welcome, 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 Richard. We're so uh, excited to have you here and learn more about what you do. And so welcome to the space. Thanks very much. Yeah, so uh, I guess just a brief background on who I am. Um, I'm a graphic designer. Uh, I've been uh, with the company called Parcel Design for uh, actually probably 12 years now. It seems like yesterday was 10 years, but that was two years ago. So now it's 12 years. Um, I started off as an intermediate, junior intermediate, and uh, I stayed there until my uh, almost my seniors, almost my seniors year. Now that I'm over about 10 years of experience, Um, you know, when we started out, we were you know, kind of just transitioning out of actually being a gifting company. We did corporate gifts for um, the early, early, you know, early 2000s. And then um, eventually we kind of moved more into branding and design space. And uh, we got a couple of different creative directors that kind of came and went. Um, and I was there for uh, some of that transition into more of a design, uh, design sort of focus. Um, and over the years, we really carved out our niche uh, as a, a brand strategy and design company, uh, working with some pretty big clients from LCBO uh, to, uh, I guess, Canada Post, you'd recognize. Um, 
we've got some smaller clients too that kind of come and go for you know just quick brand exercises um and also bigger clients that are a bit more from you know more obscure industries that kind of stay with us for uh, the services that we um, lend to them and uh, I guess the key to our success has been the, the fact that we've been able to make ourselves really um, indisposable for a lot of our clients um, I would characterize parcel as kind of a, a design company that really has um, they really think of design as being a tool for business as opposed to a tool for you know artistry there's some companies that you'll notice they um, their work all has a very distinct look you know you can spot such and such agency by the look or another agency by a specific like I won't name any names um, it's not necessarily a good thing or a bad thing but you know it's just uh, we're less tied up on having a consistent look or feel and doing and instead doing more what's right for the client um, and you know in terms of that we proceed from a sort of a strategic uh, objective we sort of figure out who the company is uh, what maybe their pain points are who they're trying to talk to um, and um, how exactly they need to position themselves in the market, uh, both visually and also in terms of language and um, even in terms of their operations, um, how to essentially get themselves brand aligned and uh, get out there with uh, some visuals that reflect uh, who they are and um, the multiple facets of, of their business. Um, yeah, I guess that's, I guess that's a pretty decent overview, I'd say of uh where we are in the design world in terms of parcel we're in leslieville um are you guys toronto where are you guys i have no idea uh students are are mostly toronto gta and but yes downtown right kind of down the street from where you are that's right yeah okay yeah we went at the corner of uh eastern and carla for quite a while and actually our building has garnered us a lot of recognition you can't overstate the the effect of uh, some good branding and when it comes to our, our building on that corner um we've we've, we've gone through a rebranding so like i say when, when we were the gifting company when i say gifting i mean we started off with uh corporate gifts right so let's say you know some companies they're hosting some kind of tournament or something and they're giving out like jelly beans the parcel would would package those jelly beans or whatever and then send them out that was before my time um but when it was that era we had this wooden sign that wrapped around the corner of the building and it was uh designed to kind of look like a label stuck onto a white package so everyone kind of knew the building as you know they do packaging or some kind of some kind of packaging thing um and actually i learned of parcel through a, a teacher of mine at uh that would have been humber at the time um and she was just kind of you know sort of rattling off design agencies she was aware of and she was aware of parcel because most people who drive from the east end to the downtown core pass pass by the old parcel building so she always remembered seeing that red sign wrapped around the corner of the building <laughs> And she actually said, oh, why don't you go drop your resume off there? <laughs> so the rest was history. And then since then, we've kind of rebranded a little bit. And so our, our sign is not wood anymore. Uh, you know, it's a plastic sign that kind of hangs off the top. Uh, and uh, it's still recognizable. So, I mean, that's just a small case study and, you know, the effect of the effect of good branding. There's a ton of design studios in our area, but you never know it because you don't really, I guess they don't, they don't have street presence. So uh, I think just the history of Parcel as a building it's a bit of a case study in the, the effectiveness of uh, good design. It's funny you should say that because I have a friend who lives just down the street from you. And so when I drive from her house into the city, which I have on multiple occasions, uh, 
your building again is very recognizable. So when I was kind of looking around to see which which studios uh, I wanted to reach out to, and I, I was hoping to speak to in this capacity today, I saw Parcel, and I thought, and and I connected to that building. So yeah. absolutely, it's like a strong. There's a yeah. strong tie there, a strong recognition. We've gotten some clients just off of passing by the building. Um, so yeah, it's kind of a, that's sort of a funny thing. And now we have a spin studio in the basement, uh, Torque, which I'm sure you noticed if you've, if, cause that's also plastered on the side of the building too. So, uh, yeah, there's lots going on parcel. <laughs> I was going to say, is it very loud? You hear all the bikes and all the, so, like, yeah, the music our, and the. Yeah. Pre pandemic, it, it bothered some people. I'm, I'm, I'm not the kind of worker that needs silence. I can work with loud music um it's probably because i'm actually i'm not a multitasker i'm what's the opposite of that a single tasker a, a unitasker <laughs> unitasker yeah so that means like i have intense focus so i can completely block out things which doesn't always make me the best listener but uh <laughs> but um uh it never bothered me but some colleagues just just drove them off the wall but then now after the pandemic, we've all gotten used to the whole work from home thing. So we've kind of adopted a sort of hybrid model like so many uh, studios have. Yeah, you just need to put some music on in the basement and like recreate that for yourself at home. And then you no longer feel like you're alone. <laughs> <laughs> so can you tell us a bit more about the role specifically that you play at Parcel and kind of what your what your job is and how you fit into all of the other pieces uh, yeah. within your company? Yeah, so I'm uh, my title is graphic designer. Um, we're not too fussy about our titles. We kind of, since we're a small company, everybody kind of does a bit of everything. Um, so there isn't really much like you know, vertical specialization. So um, strictly speaking, I'm tasked with design, but that goes into strategy sometimes too. That goes into writing sometimes too. A lot of times I develop copy just on the fly as I'm, as I'm working on a design, even before taking it to the copywriter. Um, so you know, I would just say that, uh, you know, as a, I'm a designer and um, I liaise with clients, um, I work directly with clients over the years, over the years, actually, our each designer has actually gotten closer to clients. When we started off, we had more project managers that would sort of be that buffer, you know, that person who would present to the client um, or that person who would um, get the bad feedback from the client or sometimes the good feedback from the client. Most of the times the good feedback from the client. <laughs> But uh, we've kind of been scaling back recently uh, and um, we all the designers are also sort of double hatting as uh, project managers too. So um, we, in, in, many, in many cases, uh, manage our own projects, deal directly with the clients. Uh, we manage our own timelines um, for most projects. Um, so yeah, so I guess, I guess you'd say uh, we all wear multiple hats and that's part and part and parcel <laughs> that's part and parcel of uh, being in a small agency i've never been in a big big company but i've had people who've come to work with us um kind of shocked at how much work there is and how busy we are because they come from larger companies where they're kind of i guess they're sitting on their laurels a bit more often <laughs> but um yeah so you know the you often hear the term agile used to describe uh, design studios small and agile it just means we work really hard and it's true. <laughs> so in all of that work, what is what do you love most about what you do and what are some of your biggest challenges or pain points in that role? So I guess what I like most of what I do is the problem solving aspect of it. Um, 
every day you're not always producing the most beautiful work because sometimes it's just not that's just not the realistic day-to-day -day ask. Um, you get those projects that come along every now and then that you have that opportunity to do that that knockout, uh, you know, uh, award-winning uh, branding piece, but you don't always have that. A lot of times you're working with the client and their brand is set and fixed, or so I should say their logo is set and fixed. And a lot of, a lot of times juniors, especially, they go out there and they think, oh, your brand's your logo, right? Um, but it's not, your logo is part of your brand. Your brand is so much more than your logo. Um, your, your brand is, what is it, my... The company owner always says that the brand is what people know of you by your name alone. That's yeah, that's 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 the phrase, right? Um, so the, all of that's to say, um, some of our clients, the day-to-day -day work we do for them isn't always like the most beautiful award-winning work because we're not always creating new brands from scratch. Like it's it's actually quite a rare thing, even for a branding agency to do. Most of your business is from larger clients who um, maybe their brands already established, maybe you did their brand two, three years ago, and they just keep coming back to you because they, they have new communication um, challenges to solve. And so what I enjoy, enjoy about my job every day is not always creating something super beautiful because you don't always get that opportunity, but to bring whatever level of aesthetic you can bring to the problem solving process. So if they need, um, you know, some kind of brochure for something, or even brochure is not a good example, because that could also be always is a very beautiful piece, but um, nothing's coming to mind right now. But if it's like one of those sort of, you know, part of the grind tasks, there's always a way to kind of dig into the, pro the problem solving component of it, and just sort of approach it from, okay, I'm a designer, I'm a problem solver first, and um, I'm going to use this challenge as a uh, a way to sort of use design to help a business sort of fill a need, fill a gap, solve a problem. So I guess that's kind of what gets me excited every day. Um, sometimes you have to kind of get into that mode. You know, it's like, you know, they'll give you an Excel file and you have to figure something out. And it's like, well, why am I looking at a damn Excel file? I'm a designer. I'm not supposed to be looking at these. Not that we look at them often, but sometimes you have to. Um, but once you get into it, it's about the problem solving, right? And I think, I think the core of a designer is problem solving. And I think if you don't like problem solving, if all you want to do is make pretty things, then you should be an artist um, because a designer is the art plus the business side. So you have that, you need to have that hunger and thirst for problem solving. Um, and that's kind of what keeps me excited. Yeah, that, that problem solving mindset is, uh, can be, is very, very critical to uh, marrying the, the, the beauty, the the art with, as you said, the strategy or the business goals and all of the all the bits and pieces need to work together. So, yes, I can very much appreciate that, that uh, I, too, find the problem solving part of it a lot of fun. And that's what keeps puzzle. clients coming back, because at the end of the day, the, the clients have to show an ROI for their, you know, for the for the work they put in with the, the design company. So if stuff only looks great. Um, a lot of times people actually don't, I mean, we take for granted the fact that um, people aren't all as design savvy as designers are, right? So a lot of companies, they don't get good design. They don't care. They want it to work. Um, so a lot of times you're disappointed that you've done something that you think is really beautiful and, oh, wow, I can put this in my book. But then it, the client comes back and it doesn't work for whatever reason. And it actually kind of makes sense eventually once you kind of get past the initial anger of their negative feedback and then sometimes realize oh yeah there's a reason why this pretty thing was pretty but just didn't do the job 
Um, mm. So that's why it's just so hard to get that glistening piece that's both beautiful and just you know, sort of knocks, you know, knocks it out of the ballpark in terms of all the sort of uh, things that have to check off on the wish list, you know. So do you have any examples of projects that you've worked on recently that you're really excited about or that you can tell us a bit more about in terms of, yeah, just interesting projects, interesting people that you've worked with recently? Yeah. So, so one of the coolest things we worked with, um, we worked on was, uh, so we, one of our clients was, um, sorry, is, well, is, was, I guess they just launched recently, but I'm sure they'll be back for some more work. Um, they acquired the, uh, a collection of torture instruments from the Royal Castle of Nuremberg. Yeah, <laughs> they're a philanthropic couple. They're, they're, they're art collectors. Um, they actually have an Egyptian sarcophagus in their living room. Okay, so they're some of the most what? interesting people. Yeah, interesting people I've ever met. And their house is just amazingly cool. Um, and it's in Toronto. And so they acquired this collection of torture devices. Um, which had been touring around Europe uh, since about uh, the 19th century. Uh, so what happened in the 19th century was that there was this there was this fad where people kind of people kind of got really um, excited about uh, ooing and aahing over the barbarism of the Middle Ages, and they would uh, they would they would tour around this collection of torture instruments um, as a way for, you know, the, you know, the civilized 19th century Englishman to, to look back at the, the, the barbaric medievalists and, and how horrible they were, uh, torturing each other with these, uh, ridiculous, with these, with these pain, pain initiating instruments. Um, but, uh, so our client, uh, acquired this collection, uh, through their, I guess, just through their philanthropic, uh, dealings, uh, or art collect art collecting uh, proclivities, and um, what they ended up doing was they, they ended up um, contracting a historian from U of T to actually dig into the past of these artifacts, and they actually found that a lot of these artifacts were not really used the way the 19th century tourists who went to visit these things in these traveling shows uh, thought or were told they were used. So a lot of things, they were actually medieval artifacts, but they were never used for torture or there was no evidence existing of them ever, ever having been used for torture. Um, or some artifacts were actually contemporaneous to the 19th century. So they weren't actually even, even medieval, but they got sort of roped into this collection of torture instruments and, and traveled around Europe uh, for you know, the better part of, I guess, a hundred years. Um, essentially sensationalizing tourists about how scary, you know, the, the medievalists were. Um, so they, they wanted to create a online exhibition, uh, of the, uh, of the, of the collection of instruments. And, um, the goal was actually to shed light on the myth of these torture instruments and how our conception of medieval torture isn't actually as barbaric as we thought it was. And they wanted to shine the light on, uh, the true, the true use of these artifacts um and the, the sort of message in it all was that you know maybe part of the reason why we like to sensationalize these barbaric middle ages you know tortured uh tortured you know punishments um is possibly to hide the fact that we still we still torture still goes on today so that so that we kind of in our heads, we think, oh, torture is a thing of the past. It's a barbaric thing of the past. Um, but in fact, uh, it still happens today. Um, 
and you know even in our own our own um administrations i guess uh i guess deep down in some dark basements or something i don't know but so anyway so um the idea was to uh, to brand a uh, an online exhibit called uh, that they would call torture exposed um and the the point was, was that it would kind of the client wanted um the identity to feel both medieval but also modern because it was being used as this educational tool to you know myth busts our conception of medieval torture and also to shine a light on the fact that hey torture still goes on today and we need to be aware of it and you know kind of to spur some some activism in that way so um uh, we ended up creating an identity that does do that sort of dual um it kind of speaks to that dual uh, I guess that double-sided nature of, of the exhibit where it's both about showing the period style, but also shedding light. So we ended up uh, mashing together um, a very uh, sort of medieval looking uh, typeface with a, a more modern sans serif. Um, and I guess I can show you, although I guess it wouldn't have a, an, an impact on the, the, recorded, uh, the recorded version, but for everyone here, I guess I'll just do a bit of a screen share and just show how that sort of ended up shaking out. Yeah, uh, we can we can share it for anyone who's listening afterwards in kind of the show notes. So we'll we'll make sure that if you okay, want to see this, cool. by all means, we'll we'll get you there. But yeah, what an interesting project. I mean, it seemingly cool. like once in a lifetime. Let's yes. build a website for medieval torture devices. I know, right? And they yeah. want the goal is to bring it to a brick and mortar. Um, I think you have to enable screen share. Oh, like, I'm so sorry. Their goal is to bring it to a brick and mortar uh, exhibit. They want to go to the ROM, but um, they're working on it still. But uh, eventually, they'll get there. Right now, it's just online, um, and I think even the online thing hasn't yet launched. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So this this actually. So yeah. So what you see on the left side is actually scroll on to the second one. Yeah, so what we ended up doing is we created this uh, kind of stamp or, or uh, the stamp sort of um, lockup, which uh, kind of had that connection between, you know, the, the, the old and the new, right? So you have that, the, the paired back sans serif uh, typeface um, in the middle and then surrounded, surrounding it sort of more of a, a classical um, uh, sort of humanist uh, serif face. And what was interesting about this is that because this artifact's series had changed so many hands over the years we wanted to create this kind of stamp um element that could be overlaid on top of the images of the artifacts as a way to kind of show the chain of custody uh for these uh for these artifacts and to show that okay now it's finally been um exhibited into a modern modern sort of tradition so every time the artifacts show up in the exhibit we kind of have this little stamp element that overlays on top of um some element of the 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 photographed uh, artifact and um we got this uh so sorry so on the business cards you have it um it's uh, a gold foil stamped on a dark uh, dark burgundy color background so it kind of evokes that sense of royalty you have that uh kind of those royal colors coming through evoking this idea of the the royal castle of nuremberg where you know these these devices were were first uh first discovered and the mark itself so you see in the middle the second image there so it's torture exposed so again that top typeface that's the lighter kind of lacier more medieval period style face and then below that 
exposed is the more modern, cleaner sans serif, uh, sans serif face. But again, you have that sort of medieval treatment of the O's where the O's are kind of shrunk down and, and they're, they're treated with a bar beneath them um, to just keep the line length a little bit more compressed. Photography-wise, um, we actually used um, sort of a celebrity photographer who became famous photographing cadavers. So it was, it was um, the client was friends with this photographer and um, had him come and shoot all the pieces from their exhibit in their in their front foyer. And he worked with uh, traditional film for everything. Um, so everything is shot with traditional film, and um, it's basically you know. It's a combination of artifacts on white and artifacts kind of in situations so on the right hand side where you're seeing those wax hands demonstrating the way the the finger press was used these kind of set up this kind of situational environment for you know the the, the actual torture instrument to show how it works in real life um and on the top there that's just that's just a um a mock-up for a a wild posting concept that that, that we could use um, if it ever comes to a brick and mortar style uh, um, promo. Um, actually, no, the promo here was for the online promo. So this was never produced, but this was kind of a, a concept that we had uh, floated by them. And again, the color palette. So you also have this kind of light lavender, uh, light lavender color because we wanted to, we wanted to elevate it from uh, just dark, heavy. Uh, we didn't want to perpetuate that myth of the sort of uh, barbaric uh, medieval torture instrumentation. We wanted to kind of have this sense of enlightenment. So we lightened up the palette with this um, with this brighter lavender and again with uh, the more sans serif face. Uh, so the idea behind the whole program was to kind of bring a bit more of an academic vibe to it. Um, and if do you have an image of uh, one of the website captures? I'm not sure what I sent you. Can you go? No, was, was that it? Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, well, so I'll just describe it. For the website layouts, we just kind of use a more open, airy uh, um, uh, layout format where, um, you know, it kind of shows more of, uh, it feels more academic and less sensationalized. Um, so yeah, that's unfortunately that's all I have right now because um, my screen share is not working, but... Uh, no, that is very cool. That is really cool. And actually, we have uh, a student here who's asking in the chat a quick question that I think dovetails nicely from what you've just described. So I'm assuming that you didn't work on this project alone. And so how does the design process work as a team? And do you have any tips on collaborating on brand design projects? Yeah, so um so I worked with, well, we actually worked with a bunch of uh, a group of students who are actually writing the content for the website. So there was that collaboration element. Uh, and then and then we had our client who also had um, her, the uh, the historian on, on her side too. Um, and so she was making sure that we were using the right content, showing the instruments in the right way. Obviously the photographer was someone we were collaborating with too. So we had to work with, with his style, um, make... Uh, and make you know the style of his photos work with the you know the intention of our layouts, um, and then internally um, we had our our writer. Um, but I guess our writer, yeah. So most of the copy was provided by students in this case, um, but the name generation happened through our writer, our writer process, through the writer's process. Um, and uh, I worked on the the layout, or sort of the mark with. Um, 
my design director at the time. Um, and I remember, you know, some of the earlier concepts I had for the logo was um, I was a bit more conservative, I think, with some of my some of my concepts. And I do remember her kind of, uh, you know, sort of encouraging me to go with a, a more special looking typeface. So actually using that torture and the 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 uppercase uh, sort of uh, more more um, medieval looking uh, serify typeface that was sort of encouraged by um, my design director um, because again I had some I had some more like straightforward kind of paired back simplified concepts for the for the logo, but she wanted it to look more special um, and look more ornamentational. Um, uh, so yeah, so that's you know so. When you are working on a logo, you, you come up with lots of concepts and, you know, you don't know which one's going to stick. And sometimes you need that second set of eyes to look at it and say, yeah, you know, it's just it's looking a little too plain or this has to look more special or more interesting, or more unique. Great breakdown. Thank you for for that. And that that makes a lot of sense to me. And hopefully that answers your question as well, Isabel. So maybe if we can kind of pivot a little bit, but I was kind of doing a bit of a bit of digging as to who parcel is and what parcel does and this concept of brand ops the brand ops tool kind of stood out to me so i just was wondering if you could help me understand how this tool that you've developed helps brand owners and their other team members when it comes to the visual identity or the brand or just can you tell us more about this tool yeah the brand the brand ops uh the package pretty much grew out of the the gap that exists between delivering a brand standards guide to a client and um, actually having um, sort of a, a design staff internally that can execute on it. A lot of times companies don't really have that level of um, support internally. And we, we were finding that it wasn't quite enough to just deliver a brand guidelines to, to, a, to a company because as much as that can answer in terms of your look and feel, your fonts, uh, you know, your tone of voice, even your photography. It's not a substitute for um, actually having a trained designer on staff. Um, and there really is no substitute for that. And we're lucky that some of our clients actually just keep us on retainer so that we kind of work like their in-house uh, design team, um, delivering, like I say, their day-to-day communication objectives and solving the day-to-day problems um but if you're kind of an in-between client who can't quite afford to kind of keep us on retainer constantly for all of our work and you can afford a bit more than just the brand guidelines which a lot of times kind of leads you up the creek without a paddle if that's all you're working with um, we do have this brand ops uh offering where it's sort of that in-between delivery system where we Give, we deliver the brand guidelines, but we also deliver a more robust suite of templates. Um, so we go through more of a deep dive into what are your actual documents that you really need day-to-day -day and operationally. And let's design those out for you. Let's solve all the problems you need to make those work. And let's make them into templates that are more or less foolproof. They're not always perfectly, but um, the goal is to, to, to create a template that does kind of provide that stopgap between having us on retainer full time and having um, just the brand guidelines and, and nothing else. Um, and we kind of the idea is to sort of keep it in this, keep it all in this one location uh, that we call a wiki. So it's this online portal where 
we upload the templates um, and it also becomes kind of a repository for um, uh, any other kind of uh, onboarding sort of assets and information that uh, a, a company would need um, when they have, for example, new hires or or whatnot. Um, you know, it would create it would be a place to house you know any product information that they have that's unique to their to their brand, um, any kind of you know even logins and access things. So it becomes this kind of like hub um, for brand operations, hence the term brand ops. <clears throat> so you get your templates, which help fill out your day to day needs for your business objectives, and then you have your uh, your brand guidelines, and then also your your more operational things like your uh, you know logins and stuff like that so yeah we don't have too many clients that use it but it is sort of a new offering um that we've uh brought to the table over the years again to fill that gap between having us on retainer full-time and then or just us doing a logo and sending you off for the brand guidelines which more often than not one of the biggest pain points is seeing a logo that you've designed go out into the real world and then they run with it for two months even a week I've seen it. I've seen it fall apart in a week, <laughs> and it just—it's not. It's no longer what you. It's no longer the package you, you deliver to them. So um, I think it's an ongoing struggle of every designer that works in agency um, to send home their client with something that um, they can't mess up, and that you'll always be proud every time you 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 come back to it and see what they've done. It's difficult. I think. Ideally, I think every client needs to have some in-house support, um, even when they're working with an agency. Uh, but yeah, so that's what Brand Ops is, and it's it's sort of our answer to that. Smart, smart. And that reminds me of my daughter's hair when I do it in the morning, and she's six, and then I send her off to school, and she arrives at the end of the day, and I'm like, it's still your hair, but yeah, it is not good. Like, yeah. what has happened during the day? This has gone awry. Yeah. Actually, we <laughs> launched a, a website for... Um, we have time we can talk about that watermark can you bring that bring up that piece yeah. again mm -hmm. so unfortunately i can't show you the original because my screen sharing is being funky but um i was pretty proud of this of this brand because of where they had come from um it was a very different looking brand it was typical it was typical what you would see for you know a water filtration company you know you it had like this blue light blue and navy blue wave and it was just some wonky typeface that said watermark and um, they came to us only wanting um just a small refresh and one of the first things the client said was i don't really want to change the logo um and so we did a couple of concepts that were you know that moved them just a tiny bit from where they were that you know gave them what they asked just that slight change and then we decided to throw in this totally left field concept, which you see, um, which I think you're seeing now. Um, <clears throat> and the idea there was, okay, let's bring them completely out of their comfort zone, just in the shot in the dark case, they go for it, even though they said they didn't want to change the logo. Um, and my thinking there was, um, maybe we can shift the way they talk to their audience about their own product, right? So when you think of, um, water filtration systems, you know, reverse osmosis systems, remineralizing your water, making an alkaline, all that is really kind of luxury stuff, right? Because you, you can drink Toronto tap water if, you know, that's, if that kind of thing suits you. But um, it's really a luxury element to be able to say, oh, my water has a pH of, you know, 10.2. And that's, that's what I, exactly, right? Or even to shower in it, because they even, they even have things that, um, hook onto your urine source supply so that your, your shower water is actually like reverse osmosis filtration. So 
they were delivering some pretty high-end products and also delivering to some pretty high-end clients. Like they were mostly servicing, well, not mostly, but many of their clients are in Rosedale. So that gives you a sense of, you know, the, the, the kind of uh, the income bracket that their, their clients are, are sitting in. And uh, just their logo just didn't feel <clears throat> that it had that proper station. And, you know, I, I was kind of inspired by this idea of this luxury, of luxury, uh, this luxury component to water filtration. So I thought, well, what if we brand it so that it looks a bit more like home design? So it looks a bit more like something you would see on, you know, like a package of nice candles that you buy, or, you know, some something that would, that might be branded, your, your sofa might be branded with. So that we kind of change how these people are perceiving their water filtration system, not just as this functional thing that, you know, helps me have nice water, but as this luxury, this part of my lifestyle, this luxury part of sort of a, a bespoke lifestyle where it's the same kind of brand you'd shoot you have on some you know thousand dollar lamp you bought could that brand sort of have the same look and feel for your water filtration system so that was kind of the look and feel we developed for them so we used sort of a a, 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 a mono weight um sans serif face that had some kinks in it that sort of evoked pipes to me so i thought that was kind of an interesting little uh little connection there and uh, we developed a, a palette that was uh, neutral tones of beige um, and, a, and a sort of an off black, um, which was quite uncommon in the um, water filtration space. Obviously, you'd expect people, people are mostly using blues and navies, right? So we went completely the other direction and gave them taupes and, and charcoal. Um, and that actually made sense because the charcoal filter was the last filter in all of the water systems. So we kind of tied this uh, totally new palette um, into their um, into their brand lexicon, completely different looking font, um, and sort of position them as more of a luxury luxury brand. And when the client saw it, he he got the rationale. He he immediately he gravitated towards it, signed it off quickly, just like that. Loved it, um, and it was a very very smooth process. We ended up pr producing a pretty nice looking website. Um, and not too long time. Um, but then a couple of days later, we, we we get a note from our developer after we launch it. And he says, what the hell happened to the, <laughs> I don't know what you're saying this, if this is going public, what the, hell happened, what the hell happened to the Watermark website? And I go on it and it's, it's just all this content and copy that we did not write and I did not design or develop on the homepage. Um, <laughs> and then that was like a record for how quickly something will change after you let the bird fly from the nest. So um, that's just a bit of an anecdote there, but uh, that's that. But it was only the homepage, but you know, who knows what, what will happen months from now. But again, again, that's just to talk about how, you know, things just change after you design it and often uh, can be a sad, sad, sad thing. But yeah, it's a hard thing to, you know, develop something beautiful that you're proud of and then to maintain it. So ideally you want to keep that client on so you can always do their work for them. Um, and, and make sure it's always staying the way you want it to stay. But uh, again, when you can't, sometimes just brand ops, brand ops delivery system, which helps keep it looking bright-eyed and bushy-tailed as you, as you delivered it. Um, other times, it's just the nature of the beast. Yeah, really great example, and thank you, thank you for sharing that. And we'll yeah. we'll we'll keep it on the download. It's okay. There's like <laughs> literally three and a half, four and a half, five and a half people who listen to this. So oh, we're, <laughs> we're in the cone of silence practically. Okay. So, so I guess, need to hear it. <laughs> 
So I guess my final question uh, that that I have, and then certainly I'll open it up uh, to, to student questions, but I just want to get a sense of what you are most excited about moving forward in an industry that is seemingly forever in flux, like today's current business climate. And like, what what are you excited about? What scares you the most? Where do you see the future heading for the world of of brand identity design? Yeah, well, I think everybody's scared of Chat GPT, right? Like everyone's everyone's worried about AI taking over their jobs. And sure, certainly, if I was an illustrator, I'd be pissed. Um, you know, I've seen some pretty interesting. We've all seen those little portraits that the AI thing generates. And what kind of helps me sleep well at night is the fact that, uh, you know, designers, um, we put the, we put the pictures together with the words, right? So we're doing a lot more than just something that an AI system can replicate through algorithm. Um, when I think of the problem solving that I do every day, um, I, I realize that it's going to take AI a while to ever replace <laughs> replace what we do as designers. So I think in a way, what's exciting about design is that um, it's not replaceable for the near future. And uh, it's I, I, I feel it as being in a way kind of recession proof because even when even when the um, pandemic hit uh, and a lot of people were, were out of work um, or their jobs were scaling back or whatnot, design was ramping up because people always have a message to put out there. And uh, they always need a designer to help put that message together in a, in a way that communicates to their audience. So I think the fundamental nature of what we do as communicators um, being present is, is one of the exciting things about design uh, in terms of its future and its staying power. But I mean, it's going to change. It's changed even since, you know, the you know short years that I've been in my career. And I'm sure it'll change in the next 10 years quite a bit. Um, but uh, I guess... What'll always stay is the problem solving component, I guess. Yeah, the problem solving and the people aspect of it. And I think there's so much design can benefit so much from kind of a human touch and humanity. And who knows where AI will take us? Like, who knows? It's moving quickly and evolving rapidly. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, for me anyway, I think it's like storytelling and humanity and problem solving and all the things that that uh, kind of go hand in hand with that. So cool. Yeah. Any questions from the the crowd, all six of us? Well, Darina, you asked about, uh, do you think that designers might eventually lose their jobs to AI, which was kind of kind of addressed? Oh yeah, yeah, I don't, I wouldn't say so. I mean, when you think of like a lawyer, for example, what does a lawyer do? A lawyer just cites a bunch of recalled, you know, laws and things and whatever right it's not quite as simple even for even for a designer um because every job is so different um once you get a real project and you have to tangle with the client's products and their the peculiarities of their products and their business their ins and their outs it's like there's so many different little moving parts and pieces that have to go together that it's like it's not going to be an ai thing for for a long time if ever in my opinion i don't know if like i meant to ask this question throughout the entire session basically but um let's say you have a design that you really think that will elevate this like new brand or product or whatever um and you're really passionate about how this might impact the the company itself but the client's like no i want to stick to a simpler whatever whatever but you're like but like you don't understand like <laughs> 
I've been doing this for a while. Like, it will really help. Like, how do you, I don't know, almost like convince them <laughs> to like really accept this new idea if they're like really like, like on the fence? Yeah. So the example that I gave with watermarks kind of, kind of in that vein there, because what we, the reason we were able to convince them was because we appealed to the strategic communication objective of the brand. And had I just said, hey, this is a much cooler looking logo, and this gives you a much cooler looking vibe out there, um, it might not have resonated as well with him had we not positioned it the way we did as, okay, we're positioning, we're, we're helping you actually with this brand, with this approach, we're repositioning your product as a luxury item and <clears throat> completely distinguishing you guys from your business. And when we put it that way, um, there seems to be no question in his mind, even though he had initially told us, you know, we're not changing the logo. Um, but if a client sees something, you try your best and then they shoot it down. Um, I mean, like I say, you just have to attack it from a different angle, um, usually appealing to their business sense. So talking about it from a strategic point of view. Um, and but what I mean by that is answering, you know, what this, what this does for their business, how it might help them set themselves apart, how it might help them reposition their product. Um, that, that might help, you know, in that process, but, you know, a lot of times you just can't get through them and, you know, it's, that's just part of, um, the business where, you know, it has to be a meeting of the minds. It's kind of like uh, a negotiation. So, you know, when you see award-winning designs, um, you know, it's, there's a lot of negotiation that happened there. And, uh, sometimes it takes just as good a client as it does a designer, to get something uh, really beautiful um, out the door. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Well, Richard, it's been an absolute pleasure picking your brain and getting to see kind of the work that you you are doing, and and we so appreciate you taking the time to do this with us today. It's been uh, it's been great. Thank you. Well, fun. Thanks, Diana. Thanks, everyone. Thanks.